welcome to the Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. I definitely don't believe in Jesus. It's obviously an ancient myth. And, you know, even the Jesus story, his biography, is, is completely unoriginal. He makes outrageous claims. He claims he has the authority to forgive sins and the power to raise the dead. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that. Do you, so you do think he was a real person? Most of the scholars I've talked to say he probably was. The evidence is not great, of course, but... There's lots of rules about slavery in the Bible. None of them are, don't do it. They never even thought to say that. I read about Jesus seemed to be a really good guy. They killed him. That's just the nature of people. So what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived, plus a myth, and in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that. Do I believe it? Of course not. It was written by people in the Bronze Age who didn't know what a germ or an atom was. And Jesus healed everyone, that he, and then he couldn't walk, and now he touched him and he can't walk. I don't know what to do with that. The Jesus of the Gospels is either God in the flesh or a terrible imposter. There is no middle ground. Who do you think he was? Well, God is real, Jesus existed, he was a badass outlaw, and it has changed my outlook on life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. Well, here we go. Nothing like being provocative at the uh, beginning of a message. Um, that's probably just a sampling of what you might find if you go down the YouTube rabbit, rabbit hole, Googling, did Jesus rise from the dead? What do people think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And uh, I think that's actually representative of many of the questions or perspectives that perhaps you have, your friends have, your family has, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people you play on teams with. Um, this is just a normal part of what it means actually to be people of faith. If you are a person of faith, if you are exploring faith, if you are new to the journey of faith, we can't be afraid actually to wade into the questions that wrestle with faith particularly around the person of Jesus. And so if that's you, and if that's something you like to do, if that's something you have questions about, or if you are just a person of faith, I'd say, yeah, this is something it's good for us to do. And that's why today, starting and for the next four weeks, we are in a series called Did Jesus Really? And we're actually partnering up with uh, friends of ours, a church up in Barrie called Connexus. And I'm speaking here, and I'm speaking there, and their pastor Jeff is going to be here along with uh, a couple other people we're going to see on video, Mark Clark and Carrie Newhoff answering or wrestling with, engaging with some of the different questions about Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. Um, and so hopefully you feel like, yeah, I've come to the right place at the right time. And if you're new or if this is home for you, we're really hoping that this is going to be a series that allows us to wrestle with and engage and say, hey, like, um, people of faith, uh, it doesn't mean you don't have doubts. It doesn't mean you don't have questions. It doesn't mean you don't shake it a little bit to say, hey, does this stand up? Is this solid? Is this something I can rely on and think about and believe in? I mean, I want to normalize some of these questions for us. 
Um, as I said, I think this is actually something that should be a part of our regular practice as people of faith and hopefully realize, hey, church is not a place that we pretend there aren't tough questions. Church is not a place where we try to silence the voices on YouTube or the questions coming from within our own hearts or the questions coming from the people around us. No, it's not a place where we shy away from that or stick our head in the sand. We need to and want to engage. And to that end, what if I told you that I could give you the end of a thread that if you were able to pull this thread all the way out of the whole tapestry that is Christian faith, that the whole thing would come apart. If I gave you this one thread, and if you were able to pull it all the way out, the whole thing would come apart. Or if I led you to the stone in the 2,000-year-old building that is Christian spirituality, and I said, if you can pull this stone out like a giant game of Jenga, the whole thing would come falling down. If I could show you that thread, if I could show you that stone, you know, what would you do with it? Uh, maybe you'd be like, what? That, that sounds a bit scary. Like, that's, uh, that, that, can we actually do that? Well, yeah, we should think about it. Um, in fact, you should want to actually think about it and wrestle with this. Is there such a thing? Is there such a thread or a stone? In fact, if I could say it even more bluntly, if you could find this thread and pull it out, if you could take this stone and pull it out, it would mean that if you are a person of faith or Christian faith is useless. It would mean that I made the stupidest decision of my life when I quit my old job and became a pastor. Worse, it would mean that what I'm doing and all the other pastors in this church is actually probably pretty bad. And it would mean that every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, the two and a half billion people on the planet now and the many billions in the last 2,000 years, are the most pathetic people on the face of the earth. If, if you could pull this thread out, if you could take this stone out, you might be like, Vijay, that's a bit extreme. I mean, some of you might be rubbing your hands. You skeptics are like, yes, show me that thread. Show me that stone. But we should all want to know, well, what is that? What is that one thing? And in fact, I haven't overstated it. I've just borrowed words from an early Jesus follower, very early first century, who was writing a letter um, to a group of new Jesus followers in the first century saying this very thing. And I want you to hear it directly from his words. It's the words of the Apostle Paul in a letter to the church in Corinth. And I want you to listen how what he describes that thread is, that stone, that if you could pull on it, if you could pull it out, the whole thing would come down. Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than five hundred of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? 
For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we, apostles, would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died, believing in Christ, are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more than to be pitied than anyone in the world. Well, just in case you missed it, that stone, that thread, which if you were able to dislodge it, if you were able to pull it all the way out, the whole thing would come apart. The whole house would come down is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul saying that he went everywhere proclaiming and telling these people. And he said, remember, this is what I told you the first time I heard it. When I heard it, I proclaimed it, that Jesus Christ was killed on a Roman cross, that he was buried, because that's what you do with dead bodies, you bury them. But that three days later, he was raised to life. And that he was seen by Peter and the rest of the apostles and then appeared to hundreds more people, many of whom are still alive. And he said, I also have come to believe that and proclaim that as well. But he says this, that's, that, like, this is what we've been going around everywhere telling. This is what was happening in the first century. They were going around everywhere telling people Jesus had risen from the dead. That same Jesus that many of the people had known, that same Jesus that many people had seen crucified or knew had been crucified, had been killed, had been raised to life. They were going around telling everyone that. And he said, but if it's not true, if it's not true, three devastating things. He says, your faith is useless. If there's no resurrection of the dead, if, if, if there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead, including the resurrection of Jesus, and if Jesus particularly has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. Which is so fascinating. He doesn't say, hey, if there's no resurrection of the dead, don't worry. The teaching's still good, right? Jesus taught some really good things so we can still hold to the teaching. And hey, he lived a very exemplary life in terms of how he treated other people and how he served others and, and how he was kind to the marginalized. Like all those things are still valuable, right? That's still good. You can still have faith in that. And, and actually you can have faith in the fact that he showed us what true humility and self-sacrifice is by dying on the cross for our sins. No, he doesn't say that. He said, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, none of that matters. Your faith is useless. And then he goes on to say, and also my preaching as an apostle, as a leader in the church is also useless. I'm just like, this is no point. I'm wasting my time. And you could very well accuse me and call me a liar if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. I'm not just like wasting my time. I'm a bad person. And he says, everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, we are to be pitied most. In other words, we're the most pathetic people on the planet. This is what the Apostle Paul says, and so it begs the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, 
None of this matters. All of this is useless. This is a waste of time. And he's not just saying it for them. We can say it for If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I can say this. Your faith is useless and so is mine. I am wasting my time as a preacher, as a pastor. In fact, I'm a liar and I'm doing something that's not right and not good. And none of us are in this church as pastors. And we as Christians collectively now and for the last 2,000 years are the most pathetic people on earth if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. So did he? <laughs> it's a very specific question. You might say, well, I, I don't know, like, is, did it happen? Is, is, is that the question? Okay, like, did it happen? I don't know. How do I know that? And does it even matter? Why does it matter? Why does Paul say nothing else matters? Nothing else that Jesus did. Why can't we just say, well, we got the teaching, or we got an exemplary life, or we got, uh, you know, uh, forgiveness from sins because he died on the cross. I'm not sure how all that happens, but he did, right? He says, no, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, none of that matters. So why does it matter? Well, I mean, we can often think that um, this is just a question of like, okay, well, did it happen could be like, well, could it happen? Is it plausible <laughs> that someone could be raised from the dead? And of course, many people are like, no, that's ridiculous. Um, Richard Dawkins, the, uh, someone you saw in the video there, the author of The God Delusion, says it this way. He says, the resurrection is freely used for religious propaganda and is very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Now, okay, maybe it's a bit arrogant to call the two and a half billion people and the many billions before now who believe in Jesus unsophisticates, but he's, he's an Oxford scholar and a scientist, evolutionary biologist, and he's like, no, this is just stupid. This is something only unsophisticated, uneducated, or childish people would believe. This is not possible. This doesn't make any sense. And in fact, we sort of might say, well, I guess the conversation ends here. Like either I'm forced or, right, as people of faith, we feel forced into a corner. Either I accept faith or I accept science. And it's presented as either or. Because if I accept faith, I'm believing something that really science says it can't happen or this couldn't have happened. And so therefore I'm checking my brain at the door. And many people feel like that about faith or feel like they have to be like that with their person of faith. And it pits this false dichotomy between science and faith. And it kind of puts the burden of proof on those of us who would say, no, I believe in the resurrection to say, well, no, we know that doesn't happen and it couldn't happen. So therefore you have to prove that it could happen. I remember hearing about at a debate in one of these things uh, in Oxford, somebody brought a nurse to the platform and brought them to the Q&A and, and asked them and said, so uh, you're a nurse. How many people have you seen die? And they said, many people. Okay. How many of them did you see come back to life? Oh, none. Okay. Yeah. Therefore, there's your answer. It doesn't happen. And so the burden of proof kind of makes sense, I guess, be put on those who would claim that it did happen to Jesus. Well, you have to prove that because everybody knows it doesn't. To some degree, it posits this question about the empty tomb primarily as a question about science. And science is that discipline that um, asks what, right? And takes things apart to kind of understand them and says, okay, is this possible? Is this plausible? Is this likely? Yes or no. Science is that discipline that takes something into a lab or let's bring a dead body into a lab and let's try all the different ways that we could somehow make it live again. And if we can, or we think we're close or whatever, okay, it's possible or plausible. If we can't, then it's not possible. And that's what study, science studies, something that can be repeated in a lab over and over again. But in any question or quest that we're on, um, science isn't the only discipline we can call on. There are many other disciplines actually that go alongside science, philosophy, 
logic, law, art. These are other disciplines that we use together with science to go, okay, it's not just simply a science versus faith question. There are many disciplines we can consider in, in thinking about any question or trying to wrestle with this or dialogue or bring understanding. We have lots of disciplines, including the discipline of history. And I would suggest to you that it's the discipline of history or the voice of history that we actually have to listen to when we're trying to answer the question of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's why. Science studies, in one sense, what can be repeated in a lab over and over and over. History studies when something happened or what happened, even if it only happened once. It's the when question. And so in a sense, it allows us or calls us to put the resurrection of Jesus on the timeline of history. And when you put it on a timeline of history, saying it's, a, it's a purported to have happened around 33 AD, you begin to ask the question, okay, well, what things happened around it? Or as history, as some, as history tells us, one thing leads to another. And in particular, I want to look at, and I think we can, as we use the discipline of history to answer this question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? We can look at the timeline of history and say, well, what happened after it? And there's three things in particular. There's many things that happened after the resurrection of Jesus, but three things in particular that I want to look at. Three things that happened that would, are, you have a very hard time explaining how they happened if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. In other words, if you pluck the resurre resurrection of Jesus out of the timeline of history and say it didn't happen, then you really have no way to explain how these three things that happened after happened at all. <laughs> the first one is, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, you have no way to explain how the group of disciples, his inner uh, circle of friends, went from being selfish cowards to selfless martyrs. From cowards to martyrs. You see, uh, it's documented that when Jesus was arrested... Um, by the religious leaders, there had been this mounting sort of hostility and pressure and antagonism and scheme against the life of Jesus by the religious leaders because they felt like he was a blasphemer. He was claiming to, be, to have the same power and authority as God, and no human being should do that, and he was disrupting the peace and all this stuff. So they wanted to get him killed, so they arrested him. So when they arrested him, what does his inner circle do? They fled. They ran away. Almost all of them completely abandoned him the night he was arrested. Peter kind of stayed around with him, but even sort of denied that he knew him, just trying to stay close to him to see what would happen. But by the time he died, only one of them was at the cross, the, the disciple John, and the rest of them were gone. And maybe it's harsh to call them cowards, but we understand because the Messiah gets killed, who, who's next? The close inner circle, right? This revolutionary leading this revolt against the Jewish religion or against Rome or whatever they accused him of, the next people to kill were his next in line. And so they scattered and they fled and they hid in locked rooms, it says, for fear that the same thing would happen to them because this is exactly what happened to them. I mean, in one sense, you think like there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead 2,000 years ago. It won't do to say, oh, those were just sort of people who believed any gullible thing uh, because they were uneducated because they lived 2,000 years ago. That's sort of historical snobbery, right? Where we assume that the people who lived before us were dumber than us. Um, oh, they just, Resurrection wasn't a thing in the ancient world either. They knew when somebody died, they stayed dead. That's why they buried Jesus. They weren't waiting around for him to come back to life. It was over. There was no, the resurrection of Jesus was no more plausible of a physiological idea, however less they knew about science, than, than it is now. Not only that, 
in the hundred years before the life of Jesus and the hundred years after, you had all kinds of other messiahs. People claiming to be, the word messiah meant anointed one, people claiming to be the one chosen by God to lead Israel to their deliverance from the Roman Empire. And the same thing happened to those messiahs in the hundred years before Jesus and the hundred years after. That happened to Jesus. They killed them. And when they killed the Messiah, the followers fled. The movement died. That's just what happened. No, and there's no record you can read from the Jewish historian Josephus and other um, Jewish historians outside of biblical literature. There was no claim for any of these other messiahs when they got killed that the disciples were somehow waiting around for them to be resurrected from the dead. No Jewish person believed that the resurrection would somehow happen to some person in the middle of human history. The same, the disciples did what every follower whose Messiah got killed. They left. It was over. It was done. That's why they moved on. And yet, within a few weeks, these same disciples were standing in front of the same people who had tried and convicted and crucified their Savior, telling them, oh, I know you killed him, but God raised him from the dead, and we have seen him with our own eyes, (laughs) and we don't care what you do to us. Right? These were now the people who couldn't even stand by him while he got arrested were willing to die because they refused to stop telling everyone that Jesus had risen from the dead, that they had seen him die and then three days later had eaten breakfast with him, had touched him, had heard him. And here's what's interesting. The, the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead didn't develop like in the second and third and fourth century, like, like a legend that sort of balloons, you know? That's what happens with people. The legend gets bigger than reality, right? That's what we call it legend. And after the person's death, wow, amazing stories are told. No, this tells us that from the first century, the, the letter we just read from, from the Apostle Paul was written like within a few years of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he says, some of you who saw him are still alive. In other words, go ask the eyewitnesses. I'm not just telling you this. There's people still alive from the beginning the disciples claimed that Jesus was their Lord because they had seen him after he had been killed. This is what they went, these, and they were willing to die for it. These cowards, these people who had no, were not even going to stick around to see what would happen to their Lord and Savior a few days later are telling everyone and willing to die for it. In fact, Peter, who denied even knew Jesus when Jesus was at his trial, ended up being crucified upside down because he refused to stop telling everyone that Jesus, his Lord, had risen from the dead. And in fact, over half of the disciples were killed for their faith. These same disciples, all of them abandoned him. Over half of them ended up dying, being killed by uh, the religious leaders or by Rome because they refused to stop talking about their resurrected Savior and Lord. If you say that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, you have no way to explain the incredible transformation of the disciples from cowards to martyrs. The second thing you don't have anything to be able to explain is um, how extreme skeptics became passionate believers. See, the disciples were part of his friend group and his inner circle, but you have happening after the resurrection of Jesus, people who previously were cynical and skeptical about who he was, didn't believe, and who end up becoming passionate believers. And I want to just talk about two incredible examples. One is James, the brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph had other kids. James was one of them, and he had other, and they had, he, Jesus had other brothers. And we know early on in the biographies of Jesus, his brothers did not believe he was the Messiah. Well, no kidding. They were his brothers, right? They had grown up with him. In fact, they even mocked him. They said, oh, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you prove yourself to everyone? In other words, because we know you're not, because we know who you are. We grew up with you. How could you be the Messiah? And James was part of that skeptic. He was a brother. He grew up with him. 
And yet, within a, a few years, do you know who is the first pastor of the first church that worships Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? James, his brother. <laughs> I mean, if you can convince your brother that you are his Lord and Savior, you must have done something incredible to convince him of that. I mean, who, who really knows? You could convince the people you work with or the people you play sports with or the people you go to school with that you're cool, that you have everything together, that you never get angry at anyone, that you're really smart, that you're really capable, that you're wealthy, that you're whatever. You can convince other people that, but who knows who you really are? The people who share a table with you, who perhaps share a room with you, who grew up with you, your siblings, your family, they know who you really are. And listen to this, James, the brother of Jesus who grew up with him, who obviously when he grew up with him could not imagine that his brother, who he thought came from the same place he did, was his Lord and Savior, somehow becomes the first pastor of the first church that worships Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And listen, this is very significant. Because if Jesus was just another Messiah and he got killed, James would not be the pastor of the church of Jesus Christ. James would be the next Messiah. That's what some of his followers would have done. Say, oh, they killed our first one. They killed Jesus. James, his brother, who was close to him, would be the next logical person to be called the new, the new Messiah. But that's not what they called James. James is just a pastor of a church that worships Jesus as Savior and Lord. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you have no way to explain how his brother goes from a skeptical, cynical a person, no kidding, to the pastor of the first church that worships Jesus as Savior and Lord. Secondly, the other cynic and skeptic who becomes a believer is a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was part of the Pharisaical group or the religious group that got Jesus convicted and executed in the first place. Saul was um, one of the, the very, this elite religious group, and he knew that Jesus had been tried and executed as a heretic, as a blasphemer, because he was claiming to be equal with God, the Son of God, and claimed he had authority to forgive sins and was doing all this stuff to disrupt the Jewish faith. And so Paul was part of the religious group that got him convicted and killed. And then he went everywhere, it says, in the early, after these days of, of Jesus' um, death, persecuting, imprisoning, and even killing other Jesus followers. They were, he was part of the group that's saying, we're going to stamp this movement out. This is a lying, blasphemous movement. We're going to cut it off at the knees. It has no business being a part of our faith. And so Saul was one of the people who actively persecuted, imprisoned, and killed Christians, Jesus followers. And yet he ends up, as we just read a portion of his letter today, his letters to the churches ends up making up half of the New Testament as he also cannot stop going around everywhere telling everyone <laughs> that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's why he, he's the one who wrote this letter we just read from. How does this person who was so against Jesus, so convinced that Jesus was a liar and a blasphemer, that he was going to kill and imprison anybody else he could find who was following this Jesus, suddenly becomes probably the most influential Jesus follower on the face of the planet. He wrote half the New Testament. How does the brother of Jesus and Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Jesus, how do they become believers and advocates and apostles and voices that refuse to stop proclaiming that Jesus 
had risen for the dead. In fact, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned many times for it, beaten and left for dead many times, stoned, not the modern way, the old-fashioned way, like almost killed and left for dead, and eventually executed by Rome because he would not stop proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Savior and Lord. How does this happen? If the resurrection of Jesus doesn't happen, you don't have any way to explain how two people like this and perhaps many others go from skeptics to passionate believers. But maybe the most confounding piece of history that you have no way to explain if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen is how this group of 20, so, 20 or so followers becomes a global movement of billions. Of billions. Like this group of people who gathered in house churches, just a few of them, who were all Jewish at the time, how within a few centuries and over time it ends up exploding to the fact that today there are nearly two and a half billion people who claim to be followers of Jesus and billions over the last 2,000 years. How did this movement happen? How did this actually explode like this? You might say, well, you know, this is what movements do. They, they kind of just grow over time. But I would say we actually have to look a little bit closer in history and say there's no way that this movement in particular should have ever made it out of the first century alive. It should have been crushed, snuffed out, and slowly pittered out and completely disappeared. There's no way there should be any Christians on the planet today because of these three things that were happening, working against the Jesus movement right off the bat in the first century. First of all, you have the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish religious leaders who were completely against the Jesus movement. I mean, they were the ones that God Jesus killed because they were saying, no, he's, he's disrespecting God. He's disrespecting our faith. And so the religious context that these Jewish believers were in were completely against their faith. In fact, they, they had killed their Savior and then they were trying to silence anyone who was going around saying that he had been raised from the dead. They were up against the Jewish synagogue because they believed that what Christians or Jesus followers believed was evil, that it was wrong, and they were working against it. But not only was the Jewish religious system working against the Jesus movement, so was Greek philosophy. <laughs> Greek philosophy, which quite frankly, friends, has, has influenced dramatically every century after that. The Greco-Roman culture has shaped so much, even of our present culture. Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurean philosophers have shaped so much of our present thinking. And the Greeks, they didn't think it was evil. They just thought it was stupid. The idea that somebody could be raised from the dead was just a foolish idea to them. And they even mocked it. And so you, have, you don't have any of the support of the religious system around. You don't have any, any support of higher education or the intelligentsia. They're actually mocking the Jesus movement as foolish and stupid. It's only, even like to use Richard Dawkins' words, only unsophisticates would believe this. And then they were up against the power of Rome. Rome didn't care if it was evil. Rome didn't think it was foolish. They thought it was dangerous, right? Any movement of people that are going around saying, no, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord, are dangerous to the empire. And so we know actually in history under the rule of, of the emperor Nero, who set fire to Rome and then blamed it on the Christians so that there would be massive persecution and execution of Christians and Christian leaders everywhere onto the emperor Domitian in 90 AD. We know not just the Jewish religious system was against this. The, the, the Greek philosophers didn't just condemn this as stupid. The Roman Empire and its mighty army was determined to crush this thing. <laughs> and yet within a few hundred years, actually within a few decades, you have thousands of Jews and Greeks and Romans who have become Jesus followers. 
In fact, within 300 years, the mighty Roman Empire, the same empire that had crucified Jesus, now bowed the knee, and the emperor himself declared himself to be a follower of Jesus, and that Christianity was to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. Friends, how do you explain that kind of transformation unless something earth-shattering, nature-bending, life-altering happened that catalyzed this movement of 20 people into a worldwide movement of billions of people. A movement that grew and that, and that this movement, and there, you could say, oh, there's other religious movements like Islam or Buddhism, whatever, that has grown. But there is no faith movement that has crossed more boundaries of geography, ethnicity, and language than the Jesus movement. Do you know last weekend, Easter weekend, right? Two and a half billion people around the world worshipped the resurrected Jesus as Savior and Lord. And they read from passages in the New Testament, listen, that have been translated in over 2,300 different languages. How on earth do you explain the explosion of the Jesus movement around the world from this little group of 20 followers who were only Jewish into a worldwide global movement unless something dramatic happened before it should have never made it out of the first century. I think we can say that there is the equal burden of proof on the honest historian to try to explain history as it has been and as it is now. If we want to say the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, history compels you to have to explain a lot more of what happened after it. And so we have to not just listen to the voice of science, we have to let the voice of history weigh in on these conversations. In fact, we have to learn from people who have allowed the voice of science and the voice of history and the voice of the Apostle Paul to weigh in on their story. For example, Blaise Pascal, who is a Catholic theologian, a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, but who also invented the hydraulic press, the mechanical calculator, and co-founded probability theory. I think he might take issue with Richard Dawkins calling him an unsophisticated, right? Sorry, I keep poking at Dawkins. But you know what I'm saying? Like, this is someone who's very committed to science and very committed to faith. Mary Anning, who is a passionate Anglican Christian who discovered the first completed specimen of a plesiosaur. She was the first dinosaur hunter, really pieced together the first um, completed specimen of that dinosaur. She was a trailblazer and also a passionate follower of Jesus. Sir Isaac Newton who uh, they say he loved studying the Bible more than he loved studying physics. And yet in his spare time, he invented calculus, right? And Newtonian laws are like hugely influential in the study of physics. And yet he loved to study. He loved to read. And he was a passionate follower of Jesus. And then in, pre in the present day, Dr. Francis Collins. Francis Collins, who led the Genome Project for 15 years. He basically, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, pro they said a project that could never be done, and he led the way of actually deciphering genetic code. <laughs> He's actually the, acting, the, the current acting science advisor to the President of the United States. And later in his life, he came to become a follower of Jesus after realizing he had never done any research on the topic. And when he began to research, he became a believer. These are people who have allowed the voice of science, allowed the voice of history, and allowed the voice of scripture to speak into their lives. But you see, history isn't the only voice we need to listen to in this quest. You actually have to listen to the voice of your own heart. <laughs> the voice of your own heart, own heart, which tells you death cannot and should not 
have the final word. I mean, regardless of where you are in your journey of faith, whatever kind of person you are, every one of us, I believe, knows in deep down that death should not and cannot have the final word on our lives. You know, one of the great sort of um, difficult but beautiful burdens that you carry as a pastor is you are invited in to journey with people through their losses. And I've been at many funerals and conducted many. And one of the things that I know at every funeral, it doesn't matter how old the person is, it doesn't matter how well the life lived is, every one of us in that room knows there's something wrong that a life was taken from us or a life had to end in death or such tragic pain that eventually ended in death. Every one of us in the room knows deep down this should not be. It's not wrong for loved ones to feel angry and sad and somehow that is an injustice has been committed against them that they have lost the one they loved. It's not wrong and everybody in the room knows it. Deep down we know death should not. It's not right that death has the final word. But not just as funerals. At funerals, weddings, at weddings, lovers are not foolish for believing their love will live forever. In fact, that's what they're committing to, and that's what they believe. There's nothing more precious and eternal than our love. We give each other rings when we get married, the symbol of unending, eternal love. And nobody says, oh, that's stupid. Everyone believes love can and should live forever. And we're not wrong in a moment of uh, enjoyment of the beauty of creation or victory at a game or a sport that we played or some achievement in our work to want to freeze the frame and never move on and never forget this and never let this thing become a memory. We want to capture it and live in it forever. And we're not crazy to somehow try to delay aging or delay death or, or want to in our heart of hearts believe that we were meant to live, live forever. Because we were. Because deep down in every human heart, we know life is meaningless if at the end of it, it all just gets cut short and it's a vapor and a whisper and a blackness that ends forever. We all know, no matter what kind of faith you have or any faith at all, that there's something that doesn't make sense about that. And if that's the way life's going to go, somehow it makes life today empty. We know fullness of life now depends on this idea that somehow we will live forever. Somehow love will live forever. And so I want to encourage you, it's not just sort of the intellectual pursuit of science and history and law and philosophy and logic and art, but to allow your own heart that knows deep down that we were made to live forever, that love was meant to go on to live forever, that death cannot and should not have the final word. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, hey, if we only have hope in this life, we're the most pitiful people on earth. In other words, life is too hard to let just this be the end. And if this is the only thing we have to hope for, you only live once, he says, then we're the most pathetic people on earth. He says, no, only because we know there's life after that. Only because Jesus has risen first and we know that the rest of us, there'll be a resurrection for us too, does it make life today bearable, meaningful, purposeful. And so I'll just say this, you don't have to silence the voice of science to believe in the resurrection but you also just have to invite the voice of history and the voice of your own heart to speak into the quest as well. And as you go and you're thinking about where would I begin, where would I go with this, or how do I wrestle with this more, how do I allow some of these voices to speak in, I would just recommend to you a book that actually one of the speakers who's coming later on in the series wrote. It's by Mark Clark. It's called The Problem of Jesus. And it just looks into everything that Jesus said and did, including his resurrection and some of the topics that we're going to be exploring over the next four weeks. And my hope for you is as you read that or you continue to explore, 
that, or even if you are someone who's a passionate follower of Jesus, you would have been invited and encouraged in your honor to say, yes, history has something to say about it. The scriptures have something to say about it. And my own heart has something to tell me as well.